listening to The Currency, a podcast for entrepreneurs, and I'm thrilled to have you along. My name is Mike Guest, and I will be your host on this lovely, beautiful flight today. I have a fantastic guest with me, someone that I've known for a handful of years. His name is Mike Sukanko, and he is a designer, premier. He does branding and design work. He owns a company called Sukanko Design, and I am thrilled to have Mike. So, Mike, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's it's. I appreciate having you here. It's always great. I think we've had some great conversations through the last uh, couple of years that we've done some work together, and I thought it'd be great to have you help me launch this podcast. You're one of the one of the first. You're not the very first, but one of the first uh, guests on the show. So I'm yeah, thrilled to have you. Along. Quite an honor. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really appreciate <laughs> no it. No pressure, love being right? Radio. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love this. Do you? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to have you along. We should, we should have done this earlier. I um. I want to get into your story a little bit, but before I do that, do me a favor and just for the audience sake, share with them a little bit about Sukanko Design, the kind of work you do, the people you, you work for, and uh, just give them an idea of your company as it stands today. So Sukanko Design has been around for about 10 years now. We're coming up on an anniversary in the summertime, and we focus on three areas, branding, marketing, and web design. And we focus on clients in the amusement park industry, accounting firms, business to business, and some small. That's quite a that's quite a range. So I, I think of amusement parks and accounting firms. I mean, they, I guess they both share. They both start with an A, so that's a similarity. But you couldn't get more different organizations than those two. I think. Well, it keeps it interesting. I like to learn about all sorts of different um, types of businesses, and like you know, you have to be a master of many be in this industry and you can't just focus on one because you know as the economy shifts you know one will get better one will go down so you have to be able to adapt and change to different types of marketplaces that's so interesting i i just was recording an interview with someone recently uh that'll that'll publish actually right before this one releases they were saying the same thing like one of the biggest challenges they've had is to diversify across um verticals and for that exact reason that you mentioned that one vertical might go down, the economy might change, another one will pop up. And they said the big challenge is to know which ones are going to go down and which ones are going to go up forecasting. Well, it's interesting. One of my clients is in collections. And right now, it's not that great (laughs) of a client because they don't have much to do. But, you know, if the economy goes in a downswing, that client will go up. Oh, I bet 10 years ago, they were doing great. Oh, it's fantastic. And they're still doing really well. I just know their marketing has actually kind of um, gone down a bit. But, you know, at this point, I'm really focused on the amusement parks because it's seasonal for the most part and a lot of small upstarts too. I have a couple um, businesses that are just in the up and running and doing branding for them and trying to figure out their marketplace with them. So you study graphic design uh, at RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, and you minored in art history. Mm-hmm. So you graduate with a design degree. Um, and I, I know by some of the bio that you shared, you've worked for some design agencies initially and then eventually went out on your own 10 years ago. What was the impetus of you going out on your own? What, what was that? Um, what kind of made you decide that? And also, what was the journey leading up to that decision? It kind of happened by accident, Mike. Um, so 10 years ago, I was working at a smaller design firm in town that had been around for about 80 something years. And I loved it. I had a great boss. Uh, it was a cool building, fun clients. And when the Great Recession of 2008 hit, you know, we contracted from about 13 employees to three. Yeah. At that time, I became art director, production artist, account manager, and the guy that took out the trash. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't mind it, actually, because like, I really You're wanted grateful. to support the business. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was great. I loved it. Unfortunately, you know, you kind of see the writing on the wall and that business doesn't exist as it was anymore. So what happened was I took a job at a very large corporation in Rochester here that shall remain nameless. Okay. And I lasted about six weeks. You know, I went from a real creative building and industry and people to working in a cubicle next to a bunch of web developers that didn't talk without any windows in the building. It was just not my scene. And they made me use a PC over a Mac, which drove me up the wall. <laughs> so and so it, six six weeks you lasted. I did. And then I got a call from 
a larger ad agency in town and they said, you know, you want to come in for a couple week tryout? And I said, absolutely. So it's now 2008. I have now quit two jobs in an awful economy just to potentially go get a job at a larger ad agency. Now, do you, is your son born at this point? Yeah, he was about three or four months old at this so point. So, yeah, I thought that might be the, I just want to add that because I thought this is lining up, I think, timeline. That's, so not only did you quit two in a tough economy, but you're, you've got a, a little baby mouth to feed. Mm-hmm. And I was married at the time and my uh, wife at the time was in the military. So she was going on missions a oh, lot. So wow. there I was in the spring of 2000, I think it was 2008, might've been 2009. And, you know, I was there with an infant alone and, you know, trying to figure out what the hell I was doing. And so I took this kind of gig at this ad agency and I remember the second week I was there, I left at like 5.30 and I said, well, can't you stay late every night? And I was like, well, no, I have to, you know, go home to my baby. And there was nobody else there. And I was like, this isn't going to work, is it? And they're mm-hmm. like, no, you need to be here till 8 o'clock. I'm like, I am not going to be anywhere till 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, um, That just wasn't how my life um, could work at the moment. Well, it's like you, so, you're being forced to make a choice between your child and, and, and a paycheck. Yeah. And, it, you know, that's how I really felt. I felt kind of backed in a corner. And I think a lot of people would take that and say, okay, I'm just going to figure it out. But I was like, no, this isn't how my life's going to be run. And um, so I just decided I'm going to go out there and for the time being, I'm going to start freelancing and mm. picking up clients and seeing what's out there. And I was meeting, gosh, three or four people a week at the local pub just to, you know, try to make connections with businesses or strategic partners and I was just out there and out there and out there. And um, at the same time, I was thinking, okay, I'll do this for six months. And I'll just wait for a job to open up. Interesting. So this wasn't like, this wasn't, you didn't go through college, it doesn't sound like, with the dream of a, opening your own agency someday. Oh, absolutely not. This I mean, if totally I totally pragmatic and circumstantial. It was desperation. Wow. I had to have a job. I, you know, I needed to make money. I had stuff to do. I had a newborn. I had a new mortgage to pay for. How, how um, old were you at that point, if you don't mind me asking? I was 28 or 29. So you're young. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so I, the plan was freelance as long as I can and desperately look for a job. Hmm. So let's uh, fast forward about six months from then. And I went on an interview with a small web design company. Uh, here in Rochester. And I think he had told me like, you know, 150 people applied for this job. Wow. And we went through the interview and like, I thought they had decent work. Um, But I didn't really mesh well with the owner. You know, he was very much about um, awards and, you know, doing the fanciest stuff. And my theory has always been do good work for the clients and I can't actually say that's my theory. That was from my first boss, Jerry Infantino, back mm. when I first got out of school. He was always sure. like, we don't do awards. We do good work for the clients that's going to make them money. And for the folks that are not Rochester natives that are listening, Jerry Infantino is a uh, is an advertising legend in the Rochester market. He's just a very respected OG in the ad right. business. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely the original gangster. And, uh, and that was a good lesson for me. And what, going into a place that was about you know, putting trophies up, that just didn't really kind of fit with my personality. Hmm. But anyways, he called me in for interview too. And I remember sitting at lunch after the fact with a good friend of mine and I got a call and he said, listen, I'd like to offer you the job. And I remember just thinking about that for about 10 seconds. And I said, nah, I'm okay. Wow. And that was the moment. Hmm. Yeah. Cause you've been freelancing. It wasn't like you had to quit another job. But you've been freelancing, waiting for something better to come along. And then I, you know, at that moment, I realized I'm doing what's better. Wow. Wow. But it took, uh, you know, it took a real shift in how I was thinking about things. My thought always was getting a job is the safest thing to do. And then actually about six months into it, I'm realizing that's actually the not, you know, being my own boss and um, guiding my own destination. That's the safest thing to do out there. Well, let me, let's talk about that. Cause I've always, I've had some thoughts around that as well. And I think a lot of folks that want to become entrepreneurs struggle, you know, they're employees right now. They want to be an entrepreneur, but they struggle with this security issue. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm going to lose all my security. 
Do you mind unpacking that a little bit? Because I think you've touched on something that's really important, that you actually have more security as an entrepreneur, potentially, than you do as an employee. What what did you understand around that? What kind of happened there? Well, if I take it back to when I was um, in high school and college, you know, um, my family was a bunch of engineers and, you know, people that worked on cars, worked on plants, designed things that way. Math people, as I like to call them. <laughs> um, you're the you're the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> oh my god! They don't. They look at me like I have lobsters crawling out of my eyes some days. <laughs> but you know, and I remember my dad was always like, you know, you go to school for engineering and you get a job um, doing something, and you wait for a pension, and that's going to be the safest way to go. It was always about being safe or doing something. Um you know, standard. And that was kind of my, what was kind of ingrained to me through many years. And then going into a creative field, that was a, that was really strange for my family. They still didn't get it. My, till the day he died, my grandfather thought I was the guy that was drawing the people in court. Oh, really? He had no idea what I did. (laughs) How did he get that idea? I have no idea, but that's every time he's like, yeah, you draw the people in court. I'm like, no. After a couple of years, I was just like, yeah, that's me. Well, at least he didn't think you were like doing greeting cards or something. Right. Which I did for a while, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But that was, you know, that was kind of the mindset, especially coming from, if you think about Rochester 10, 20, 30 years ago, you know, it was a, it was Kodak, Bausch and Lam, Xerox. That was most of the workforce. Absolutely. And we're taught from an early age that's what you go do. You go get a job at one of those places. We're a very conservative market here. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, we're, and I would say politically, we're very progressive. We're more, more, we're pretty, like New York, like any city in New York, we tend to be very social, liberal, leftist, in a, but, but like business culture is very conservative here. I would agree to that. Yeah. I would definitely agree to that. So, um, but this idea of security, I kind of got you off track, but security, right. yeah, where, where were you going with that? Because I want to hear this. I think it's important. So even working at an ad agency, I thought, okay, I'm in a creative field and I'm working under an art director or a creative director and all these people and they're going and um, getting the work and I'm just going to do that work and I'm going to be really safe. And then you do it for five, six, seven years and you realize, holy crap, you know, it's not safe. The people aren't selling out there. Your creative director is doing something crazy. Um, you're at the mercy of yeah. levels above you. Yeah. And I didn't want that anymore. I wanted to be, if, if I was going to fail, I'm going to do it my own way. Right, right. And that's, I always try to explain this to people that, um, you know, you feel like you have a sense of security in a job because somebody's taking care of your 401k and your health care and they're taking care of payroll. But the problem is you could show up on a Monday or a Friday or a Tuesday and just immediately learn you don't have a job anymore. They could just sit you down and say, hey, Susie, I'm so sorry, but we got to let you go. And it could be for a multitude of reasons. You never saw it coming. At least as an entrepreneur, you know when you're going to hit the wall and you can see that wall away out. You're like, okay, uh, we're about to have a problem here. And then you can course correct. You You can have control over it. Well, absolutely. I remember being at the agencies. I was never thinking about six months down the line. I was just thinking about what's on my plate Your for next today. Deadline, what's the right? list? Yeah. Right, exactly. Whereas now I'm constantly trying to project, okay, what do I have coming in for June? What do I have coming in for September? Where are the leads that I'm going to have to start generating now to have work in the fall or the winter? Right. Yeah. No, it's, that's wise. Well, so there, there's a good piece of advice. For those of you that are already in business, you know this, but for those that wish they could be in business or want to start something. Uh, I'm not I'm not advising you just jump out of your business. I mean, security doesn't happen. You've got to build that security, but you have a lot more security, a lot more control over your destiny when your hand is on the rudder versus, uh, you know, rowing in a ship. It's not bad. I mean, it's not for everybody because there is some stress and strain. Like, Mike, as you're thinking about the next two quarters and what you have to do and like you, you know, when you're working for this other agency, when the when the economic crisis hit, you were art director, designer, and taking out the trash. You probably have 20 more jobs now as your own, running your own agency than you did when you, you know the economic crisis hit that that firm you were with. Oh yeah, at accountant, you know, billing, receivables, 
Um, <laughs> still taking out the trash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Technology, IT. Yeah. You don't have to do it all. Yeah. Um, and the biggest thing is obviously client acquisition and keeping these clients happy. So talk a little bit about the client acquisition piece. And I'm thinking specifically, not so much now, but like how hard was it during the economic crisis? You said, hey, let me just freelance. At least this way I can be available to my son and I can keep the home fires going while my wife is off deployed. How And you did a lot of networking. How hard was it during the crisis to find work projects? Um. That's a good question. And I think it's because as you get older and you're in it longer, it becomes easier to do and you know where to look. So I think when I was first starting out, it was not knowing exactly where to look. Mm. Um, you know, you start going through LinkedIn and you're trying to meet with, you know, everybody and um, anybody that you can. And I remember I was having probably three or four meetings a week and, you know, three out of four of them wouldn't, you know, be the right person anyways. But one out of four might lead to a project with their company or they might know somebody. So mm. it's, you're just constantly out there um, hitting the pavement. That's good. Well, you made it through and, the, and you proved to yourself in those six months. And then, of course, looking at that job that, that you found where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And then I think another lesson I had learned early on was the importance of strategic partners. You know, being a one-man shop, I learned, okay, I can't do this alone. I'm going to need other people that are either out there selling or developing or writing. You kind of create your own um, team yeah. out yeah. there. And you, by doing that, what I found was, okay, now I have, I'm looking for work. And I'm going to share that work with the developer or the writer or the photographer. But mm -hmm. at the same time, they're looking for work. And right. They're going to share it with me. So you find this little team out there that you're kind of constantly working with, almost like a little... Um, I don't know, commune of some sort. And that really helps out there. A you know, capitalist you, commune. <laughs> sort of. I don't, I don't know how to really put it. But at the same time, you know, you're, you're out there doing stuff together. And it's, you know, you're, you're kind of creating a, um, well, you have, you know, I had my own business, but it was creating kind of a business entity around this team. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Those partnerships are critical. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you there. Yeah, I think that was probably the best lesson that I learned in the course of you know the first six to six months to a year was mm -hmm. really um, getting those on board and finding the right people. And you know, you find some people that are wrong that you try to work with, it just doesn't gel. It's the same thing like when you're playing music, right? If anybody plays out there, um, like I'm a guitar player, and sometimes you play with another guitar player or a singer or a drummer. And sometimes it just doesn't work. You're not on the same rhythm. And I think within business, it's the same thing. If you're not um, doing business the same or understanding how to treat clients the same way or the way you do your process of work, it just doesn't work. But there's a handful of people that, w that will. And you kind of have to go through the good and the bad to get there. Do you find the same thing for your clients? I mean, you're talking about your strategic partners, but do you find a similar... Are you looking for a similar kind of syncopation, like the ability to synchronize or synchronicity, or I'm not sure what the right word is, for clients as well? Or is that really just your partners? Um, clients are a little bit different. I think you have to find clients that value what you do. Um, you, don't look, you don't want the tire kickers, and you don't want the people that are always shopping on price. Um, they're the ones that will, you know, end up killing you. Because if you're working for on an hourly rate at a price – there's only so many hours in the week. You mm. want the people that are using you for your expertise and they are, you know, they're, they might be price sensitive or conscious, but at the same time, they're coming to you because you're the expert and they're letting you do your job. Sure. Sure. So Mike, when you started the company, you started more out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Now you've been doing it for 10 years. What is your reason uh, for, for being in business today? If you look back and say, okay, because people change over time. It's, I mean, I'm sure there's a necessity. You still have bills to pay. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that fine young man of yours likes to eat well and and, uh, <laughs> and have shoes to wear and all those kinds of things. But what gets you out of bed in the morning? What's your why when it comes to your business? Oh, that's a tough one, Mike. I think, you know, it's one of those things a lot of people might have right off the tip of their tongue, but I don't know if I do that. Um, my why. You know, my why might be I get to be creative every day. I get to go to a place I enjoy. I don't have sleepless nights of, oh, I don't want to go there and be with these people or doing something. I get going to a place of of friendliness and of creativity. 
and um, being able to kind of draw my own path. Hmm. That's cool. So, so the business is a platform for you to realize your creativity, the things that fulfill you as a creative yeah. person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's all, I like the freedom. I mean, I guess after 10 years of doing this, I couldn't imagine going into a place and being, oh, I have to be there at nine and I have to leave at five. That's the worst. <laughs> like sitting at your desk waiting for the day to be done. I yeah. don't want to do that. I want to yeah. be able to you know, get up and go and um, take advantage of that. And like on a summer day, just leave early, go take my kid to a movie or do whatever. I mean, sometimes, I mean, business is hard, right? I mean, there's weekends that I've worked, there's nights that I've worked, but there's the flexibility that makes it um, worth it. Now I find I like that flexibility too. I find I'm really good at doing the extra work. I'm not bragging. I'm just mean that stress of I got to get this done and it's six o'clock at night, but you know I just got to keep going till it's done. I don't do as well as saying let's take some time off. Do you mm-hmm. do you struggle with one of those, one or the other, or the, or you're are you good at saying look I earned it. I'm going to take some time off. I'm getting better at it. It's taken a while, and here's a fun fact. It took me about two years to realize that I didn't have to sit at my desk for 40 hours. I felt tethered for a while because I was in that nine to five mentality for so long. Yeah. But after a few years, realize there's freedom here. If there's, if I'm getting the projects done, the clients are happy, the billings out, the checks are in, I can go and do something else. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. Folks, my guest today is Mike Sukanko. He is the founder owner and genius behind Sukanko Design. He's also a good friend of mine. You can follow him on Instagram. Just look for at Sukanko Design. That's S-U-K-H-E-N-K-O-D-E-S-I-G-N. We'll be right back after this brief message. Hey guys, thanks for joining me for this episode of The Currency. I hope you're having a great time and we're going to get right back to our conversation in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to ask you a favor. Would you take a moment, if you've not done so already, and subscribe to The Currency? You can find us on Apple iTunes, you can find us on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, really anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Take that moment, hit that subscribe button, and what's going to happen is you're going to get a fantastic quality product once a week from yours truly. Now, I interview entrepreneurs and business thought leaders because I want to help people like us, entrepreneurs, executives, consultants, freelancers, and even marketing professionals. I want to get behind the scenes. I want to uncover the thinking, the experiences, the failures, successes, the insights that these people have gained so that you and I can do better work. So if you haven't, again, please take a moment, subscribe. You can find this podcast anywhere. And for those of you that have already done so, I want to say thank you. Thank you for helping grow this really great community. And I'm excited to see where we're going to take this. So guys, let's get back to the show. And we're back. I'm your host, Mike Gaston, and this is The Currency. We are talking today to Mike Sukanko of Sukanko Design. If you want to check out his website, he's got a couple now. He's got a radio-friendly URL that I'm going to give you, and that is graphicdesignrochesternewyork.com. Graphicdesignrochesternewyork.com. Or you can just type in sukanko.com, S-U-K-H-E-N-K-O.com. Mike, welcome back. Thank you. So I think uh, one of the things that I really wanted to ask you, I love asking this question. You've been in business for 10 years. You've seen some good. You've seen some bad, I'm sure. Uh, what's been your toughest or biggest challenge as an entrepreneur? The toughest thing was learning how to price because in the beginning, you're like, oh, I can't charge that much or they're not going to they're gonna go for it. So you have to overcome that. You have to be able to realize that Price resistance is all in your mind. Hmm. So, you, so you were, there was a fear. You're saying essentially you didn't want, you were kind of keeping your prices low, hoping that you'd land the work versus scare someone away. Right. You keep them artificially low to get in, um, and then you have to realize that the work is worth more than you've been charging, and clients are willing to pay more. Hmm. I hope my clients aren't listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I hope they're. I hope if they are, they're saying to themselves, "Yeah, Mike charges a fair price." I mean, it's not so much as the price high or low; it's what value do you create for them? 
and it's important. And I think, again, with price resistance, it's mostly in our head. Um, and many business owners that I've talked to, the first thing we talk about is price. And I would say nine times out of 10, I'll say to them, you're charging way too little. How do they react to that? Well, usually they go, what I would say is, oh, nobody would ever pay for that. And my answer is, how do you know? Hmm. So you have to try. How did you go about testing? Like, how did you go about revising the way you price things? So at some point you have to be willing to lose. Um, A good sales coach of friend of mine um, once said, if you're getting a hundred percent of the quotes that you put out there, you're doing something wrong. Hmm. That's that's good. So the being willing to lose is critical. Yeah. And sometimes you might get a quote in and, you know, if business is good, you might say, okay, you know what, I'm going to see, use this as an experiment and try to test where that price ceiling is. So you might pump it up um, 50% and then you'll get it. So the next time you might say, okay, I'm going to try 100% and so on and so on and so on. And suddenly you realize I've been charging, you know, 25 to 50% too little for the same project for the last five years. That hurts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's all a learning experience, you know, and you you have to overcome that because then, especially in the beginning, you want the work, you want the clients because you're hungry and need it. And not that I'm not hungry and want the work now. It's just I've learned how to price differently, and I don't want every piece of work. I want the right client. I want the client that I see as a long term relationship sure. that I'm sure. going to be able to build, you know their branding, their marketing, their website. I want to be able to become part of their team. The guy that comes to me and says, you know, I just want a logo and this is what I want to pay for it. I will send them someplace else. I'll try to find them a good place to go or I'll have a referral to give them, but that's not the type of client for me. Sure. Well, and I think, you know, the person just getting started, the, the mic, the mic that just said I'll freelance for a few months is a lot different than the mic today. Meaning you have a big network You have a brand. People know you. Mm -hmm. They associate qualities with you, positive qualities. Uh, You have referrals. You've got a big body of work that you can display to people now. So, so I would say reputation, brand, network, all those things, you know, put you in a different place. Whereas when you first started, you kind of had to take whatever you can get uh, because you're an unknown quality quantity. I've had um, like when design students would graduate college and they they'd apply for a job, and you'd say, okay you know, and you start talking about salary and they had like a, they want to triple what I was offering. And what I was offering was going rate for students coming out of school in our market, mm-hmm. but they had a, a, an inflated sense of what they're worth. And I said to them, look, and they would say, well, I just got my degree from this prestigious school. And I'd say, here's the thing today, just today, you're an unknown quality, if any, or unknown quantity to me, if anything, you're a liability. So, my belief is the reason I'm offering this position is you're going to become an asset and I want to pay you like that. But to start, it's a lie. You're a liability. You, you've never worked on a, a full-time job. You've never done client work. I mean, I don't, you know, it's, it's a risk. So I wouldn't like hold that over their head, but the point just being as you grow in value for the business, I'm going to make sure that the compensation reflects that. And you know, the smart kids got, they're like, okay. And, and the kids that just had their eye on a certain dollar, they, you know, they moved on, which was fine. I think you can actually use the same theory for clients in that when you're dealing with a new quote out there, you're also interviewing the client. You want to make sure that they fit with what you do well and mm. how you're going to work. You want a client that understands the process. They understand the speed you're going to work at. They're point. not going to be the ones you know, calling you in the middle of the night. They need to be able to respect you as a designer and as a person, um, and how they treat you. So I think you have to be really cognizant of those initial emails or initial phone calls or meetings and start asking the right questions of, uh, you know, what are your expectations of me? What are your expectations of the, you know, date and the, the product? And how do you expect me to respond to you via, uh, whether it's via email or via phone and, making sure you're getting all the answers to those because it's important. You don't want a nightmare client to suddenly appear when you have, you know, 30, you know, very loyal clients that have been giving you work for 10 years. Right. Mike, how has your pricing changed? I understand the concept of trying to charge more for the work because there's more value, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I'm bringing more to the table. I shouldn't be fearful of asking for more. It's fair. And clearly no client's going to say yes. If no one's going to say, Oh, please take advantage of me. You know, they're going to say yes if they think it's a fair price. So that's good. 
have other aspects of your pricing changed? Meaning like, did you start out hourly and move to a different model or is that model stayed the same? I have a blended way of doing this actually. Um, you know, there is a, a series of clients that I have from the beginning and, you know, we've had a built a relationship over the last decade and they might be on an hourly rate with me. And over the course of 10 years, you know, that rate has doubled. Sure. Um, and they're fine with that and they're comfortable with that. Sometimes, you know, I'll have to give them a quote for something for a larger project, but that's, I would say the old way that I'm doing it. And, you know, it, it's kind of um, historical at this point. Then I have the project basis where a client might come in with an RFP and they'll ask for a proposal and it's a, you know, fixed or a ranged rate there. Yeah. I've also been getting into more retainer work okay. um, where the client is basically utilizing me as a part of their team. So it's a monthly fee and, you know, I'll commit to a certain amount of hours a week or a month for a extended period of time, say six months or a year. And I become more of an extension of their marketing team. And then there's some clients that like to pay for a block of hours. They might say, okay, I have, you know, I want 30 hours from you and we'll work them off. So it, it really depends. And I think okay. it's important to have that blended rate to be able to adjust to a client. Okay. That's interesting. So you've got a very uh, eclectic approach. You're just, sounds like you're kind of customizing it to your client's needs, your, your, your approach. I think so. You know, you can't uh, fit everybody into the same box. Sure. I mean, I, I have to be honest. I feel like that would be hard to do. Like, I, I'm i not rigid in the way that I uh, bill or the way that mm-hmm. I structure remuneration, but but I don't know that I'd be able to handle, like, so many different ways because I, I feel like I would I, – I, it would be, like, too much to keep track of. But I tend to be more project-oriented. A lot of what I do is, like, it's a project. It has a beginning and an end. Here's the number and – um you know, and I'm off to the races. So, I mean, I, it, the nature of my work is probably more defined. Than... Oh, thank goodness for Trello. It keeps me honest. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Good so my... project management software is really important, especially when you're dealing with those. Uh, do you, um, does project management things. come natural for you? Yes. Um, I think my, this is the interesting thing about me. I'm a creative, but at the same time, I'm very OCD. So um, if you were to look at my files on my computer, everything has a specific naming structure and, you know, when I send an email, it's very concise to the point. Um, so project management, I love it. I love keeping things organized. I love alphabetizing things, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've noticed like I, we did a project together for a client about a year or two ago. And I remember when it was a branding, I did all the, like the brand strategy and then you created all the corporate identity, all the brand elements. I mean, you, you made it come to life visually. And I remember when all the files started coming over, cause there was stuff like for t-shirts and logos and letterheads and, Everything was just so organized and it gave me a little chill. It was like, oh, this is like a happy, you know, because sometimes files can be, and I'm not the most organized, but I love things to be organized. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm not OCD about it, but I love it when it's in order. And it's like, that's just really sweet. Well, so, I'm here right now looking at my computer and currently on my hard drive, I have work for 40 different clients and each of those clients might have, you know, between three to a hundred different jobs. So if you don't name your <laughs> yeah. files correctly, You're you done. have to know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, well, it's a time saver knowing that I can go by, you know, and each client might have a different system. Like for the amusement parks, every um, folder structure starts with a year because they're going to say, I need this file from 2017. So okay. you kind of have to adapt, but as long as it's consistent in a way that sure. I can find it, it'll work. Sure. Well, good for you. I um, Hats off. Because I <laughs> love you. the concept of organization, but I get too stressed in the moment to take the time. Because I think organization takes time on the front end. And then, you're, you know, then you're saving time on the back end, like you're saying. But sometimes I'm like, okay, I just need to hurry up and get this done. I'll fix it later. And then later never happens. Those files never get reorganized later. You know, it keeps the creative side of my brain in balance. Um so the project management side, really, I'm able to kind of tackle things that one side of my brain does. I never know if it's the left or the right side that does what. I can never remember yeah, that. It's a, um, I, you know what? I'm just thinking as you're talking. This is your this is your family's gene kicking in here. So you're you're the musician artist, but you've got the engineer's organizational skill set. Oh yeah. Plus, my mom was completely crazy. <laughs> 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 so she was always keeping the uh, house in order. So I learned that at an early age. Um, yeah, nice. I remember when I was a little kid, you know, organizing my transformers by height. 
Nice. Yep. Yep. You know, I did one time, uh, this is really great radio for the listeners, I'm sure, but one time I went through my iPhone and organized, so I created folders for every app, or not for every app, I created folders, and then I put all the apps in folders based on the icon color, and then I tried to, within that folder, graduate the color from dark to light. So one folder might be all reds, one might be purples, greens. And then I organized all the folders starting like with a dark blue and then went all the way through the the um, the rainbow there. So when you looked at the phone, it was like this waterfall of organized color. And funny enough, it was beautiful, but I kind of remembered where everything was. Like it worked. That's amazing. It was just, <laughs> you know, obviously I had too much time on my hands, but... Um, well, I remember watching this movie called High Fidelity. I don't know if anybody's ever seen it. It's from, uh, with John Cusack back in the oh, 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's a record collector. And there's a scene where he's reorganizing his record collection. And a guy comes in and he looks. He goes, I don't get this. It's not alphabetical. It's not chronological. And John Cusack goes, biographical. Biographical. <laughs> so it's by his life, right? It was by his oh, yeah. life story. Yeah. He says, I, if, I can teach you how I got from Abba to Thin Lizzy in three moves. There you go. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, man. Mike, what are, you, what are you most proud of with the business? If you look back over the 10 years, and clearly you've got a, a bright future ahead of you. You're, you're young still, and you've got a lot of experience and a lot of time to, to do good work. But what are you most proud of to this point in your entrepreneurial journey? I think it's the business relationships that I've made. I mean, I would consider a good majority of my clients as friends at this point. Yeah, I've been working together with them for, you know, the better part of a decade. And I trust them, they trust me. And that's not easy to do these days. Yeah. Um, I think especially in our marketing field, you know, a lot of people are, our marketing people are perceived with a, oh, a disdain and a kind of feeling of being a swindler and yeah, yeah. you know my clients have a trust in me that they've that i've built over the last decade and i think that's what i'm most proud of that's um relationships are so powerful and valuable and often overlooked you know you think of business like when i was younger i think of business as business it's my intelligence it's my ability it's my you know hard work but at the end of the day business is really people isn't it Interesting you say that. I was on YouTube yesterday watching some um, videos for sales coaches. And a guy, um, I can't even remember his name, and he was saying, um, businesses, you know, salespeople always say it's about relationships. And I don't think that's true. Um, a business doesn't make a business decision based on a relationship. And I would have to completely disagree with that. Hmm. At the end of the day, it's sure it's about fair pricing, but and the work, but you've built these, so you've built that relationship based on fair pricing and good work mm -hmm. and trust. So I would have to completely disagree with that gentleman that I was watching that it's about not about relationships. What, what, it totally is. Do you remember what he thought it was about? Like what what was what was the thing you should be focusing on? He said it was about perceived pricing. Which completely... Uh, I, I don't agree with that either. I yeah, mean, go, it's... To go back to our earlier conversation about pricing, I mean, you, you know, like you said, price is like always the first thing people bring up. It's really the, the least thing that they're worried about. Well, think about anything you've ever bought. Like you go to buy a new refrigerator and you go to, you know, an appliance store and you look at five in a row and they go down from, you know, $500 to $1,500. What's the likelihood that you're going to buy that first cheapest one? there's always a sense Zero. of, right. There's always a sense that, oh, this is the cheapest one. It's probably not going to work as good. Right. Now that might not be true. You might be paying for more for bells and whistles, That's but right. I think for the most part, people are not apt to buy on the cheapest level. And the ones that are, are not the clients you want. That's right. That's right. There are people that will buy in price. You're absolutely right. But those are not the folks you want to work with. And quite frankly, I mean, I wouldn't even begin to know how much money is put into brands globally. It's got to be trillions of dollars. I don't know. Companies well, would not invest millions and billions into brands if it was all about price. You know what I'm saying? They they would just fight to get the cheapest price. They wouldn't worry about brand equity, brand recognition, any of that. Do you remember um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, that uh, there was a website that came out called $5 Logos? Yeah, vaguely. Yep. So, you know, when I was at the agency, I can't even remember the thousands we were charging for logos. And then this website come up, you know, came up 
and people were concerned. They're like, oh my God, yeah, we're going to be the end. Away. Right. Right. Well, unfortunately that site didn't last. Right. And you know, there's still, there's still things, there's fiber and then there's, um, thumbtack and everything there and you can find good designers, but are you going to be able to build those relationships right, right. off of that? Are you, you know, if you're offshoring something of your brand and then you're expecting to be, um, working with that guy or that woman for years to come on your marketing and trusting, you know, them with your email lists and your, you know, your deepest, darkest business secrets? Probably not. Right. You know, the person, you know, that, that works for might be, you know, the local coffee shop or somebody that just needs a t-shirt design for a 5k. Right. That's fine. I think that there's value into all of that. But if you're looking for a serious business um, partner and somebody that's going to have your best interest in mind, you, you got to look, you know, there's very few of us. Well, I think one of the things that someone like you brings to the table, uh, so I've been working with you, uh, theoretically, I've been hiring you as a designer and an advisor marketing-wise for years. Every project you do, you gain more and more knowledge, more and more equity. We've banked together about my business. So I might call you and go, hey, I need a brochure done. The Fiverr designer goes, okay, I'll do that. I'll, I'll name that tune for you know 20 bucks. I can do a brochure. I'll bang it out. You're going to come to the table and go, well, let's talk about what does this brochure need to do well? We're having a problem with our sales. And so they're telling me they need a new brochure. Well, what will that? Well, they say this and that. And, and then you might actually come up with a different solution for them that, that solves the problem and makes them money. Mm-hmm. So they could argue, well, yeah, Mike charges 10 grand for a brochure and I can get it on Fiverr for 30 bucks. But, but it, that $30 might be the wrong problem. And right. that Fiverr person doesn't, nothing against Fiverr, there's a, like you said, there's a place for it. But that person doesn't know enough. They have no context. They're just uh, executing. They're a job shop. Well, Where you you're know, a I partner. Said, I've done a lot of work for amusement parks um, in the past 10 years. Your and kid's got to love that, by the way. You go like, hey, let's go do some field testing. Oh my God. He's been on billboards, brochures. If you look at like the Seabreeze <laughs> website, he's all over the place. Him, my nephews, my neighbors. Cause when I do a photo shoot, I got to get the models. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I just put a call out on Facebook. I'm well, like, that's gotta be fun to for be a this? kid to have his dad work for amusement parks. That's gotta be like pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. Um, but it's interesting talking about two people that do some of that work and who I've talked to are newbies in the business. And they're like, well, it has to be great. You have to be doing all sorts of, you know, videos about the attractions and stuff like that and getting that on the homepage and, you know, showing all the different, you know, crazy heights of these roller coasters. I'm like, nope. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, the first thing you're supposed to do is sell a ticket. Mm. That's the problem that they've hired you to do is you're building a website so they can sell tickets and get butts and seats to show that the latest roller coaster is this great paint color and stuff that's secondary or mm-hmm. you know tertiary to anything mm-hmm. at the end of that you're selling something and it's hard for i think especially new designers to realize that um and i think that's only something you learn through years of experience as a designer is you mature into a, a marketer mm-hmm. and not just the guy that's pushing pixels right right and i think i would hope that's how most folks career evolve you know the professionals you know you're starting kind of more tactical whether you're a young attorney, an accountant, a designer, you know, whatever, you're you're kind of just doing the job day to day. And as you get older and more experienced, you're becoming more strategic in your perspective. Mm-hmm. And you're solving higher order issues and, and dealing with actually more basic issues in the sense that, like you're saying, you're dealing with a revenue issue. That's a core basic aspect of a business. Um, but it's actually more valuable. So in some ways, it's simpler but it's a, but but it carries a lot more weight than hey we need to show off the new piece of equipment we just bought and well uh, right and yeah. you know the other thing is that being a designer it's very easy to be very showy and you're trying to be stylistically new and do something crazy but at the end of the day is that being a designer that's um, cognizant of his client's problems that's the more important thing you know are you selling the product are you getting the information that needs to be out there to the client. Or are you just, you know, playing with new duo tones and filters and <laughs> all sorts of crazy stuff? So there's there's a balance there. You have to be able to be cutting edge, but you, at the end of the day, you have a problem to solve. Yeah. But well, I think that's part of me, you know, being that kind of left right brained person, you know, understanding the the project and then the design part of it. Hmm. You're just seeing both sides, the business side and the creative right. side. 
Mm -hmm. And I think every designer out there should take marketing courses and learn how to sell. The one thing I wish they taught more in college was entrepreneurship, teaching kids how to sell, teaching kids how to deal with clients, and teaching kids the fundamentals of running a business. Yeah. You know, when I, I agree, when, when um, I owned my agency and the ki- our kids were growing up, I was so grateful and I, I, would say, I would say to my wife, you know, even if the kids don't become entrepreneurs, at least I, I'm, I know that the exposure they've gotten to my business will help them be great you know, professionals, great employees. I don't mean in, in a kind of subservient, like, oh, a cog in a machine, but I wanted them to bring an entrepreneurial mindset, even if they weren't going to own their own business to kind of say, look, I get, I get how business works. I get my role. I understand how I can create value. Like I'm, I'm here to be a producer and a contributor. And uh, that, so that was my hope that they'd be able to think that way, because you're right. I don't think that the school system teaches that necessarily. No, I think it's so important. I think um, my kid's 11 now, and I'm always telling them, you know, get out there, mow some lawns or go pick up some sticks, do something, (laughs) you know. (laughs) It's important, you know, to be able to, especially these days. I mean, well, you've seen, this is a different show probably, but, you know, kids are addicted to these, uh, you know, their phones and their iPads and everything. Get them out there and do stuff. Yeah. You know, teach them how to do something. The greatest gift my kid got this um, Christmas was a toolbox with a, bunch of tools yeah you know all it takes is like one experience for the coin to drop it's one thing when they mow the lawn your lawn and you give them i don't know five twenty bucks Mm -hmm. whatever the going rate is now my kids aren't young anymore but but it's another thing when they go down the street knock on a neighbor's door and that guy gives them 20 bucks not that you know then it's like a hunger kids either gonna decide i hate this i'm never gonna do this again this was the worst experience of my life or it stokes a flame like oh uh, this is amazing. This feeling is great. I'm, I want more. And, uh, you know, I'm going to knock on more doors. I want more business. So that it just takes sometimes one experience. Like what, Absolutely. What advice would you give to someone that wants to be in business for themselves? Maybe they're in your shoes, you know, 10, 15 years ago. What's the one thing you can take from your experience today that you would say to a young person or, or even a person my age that wants to kind of launch out on their own and start a business? strategic partners find your team and what what is that like what should they look for so i i get it like surround yourself with good people but what should they look for in a strategic partner well the first thing is you have to have like-minded business goals and you have to find somebody that you can trust that knows that they're going to have you know everybody at the end of the day is out for themselves right in business no stop yes come on (laughs) (laughs) but um at the same time, if you have common goals and you have different skill sets that you can utilize to reach, achieve those common goals, that's where you can um, be much more successful. Hmm. Well, it's, uh, I think there's, um, I don't know if it's a proverb or something. It's like one can route a thousand, but two can route 10,000. Just, you know, meaning, you know, you can only do so much on your own, but it, it's not like when you find a good partner, it's not just double, it's exponential, the mm-hmm. benefit to both parties. And uh, I think that's wise. One of the things that I've always tried to look for too is people that complement my skills. Because I think that my intuition sometimes define people just like me. So I want people that, like you said, I absolutely agree, like same values, same kind of goals. Like you and I, you know, we're family people. We're trying to do good by our clients. We want to we wanna be successful. Like you have overlapping. That's great. Mm-hmm. But like where I'm disorganized and you're organized to me, that's great too, because it's like, okay, now I've got somebody on the team that, that backs up a weakness that I have. And, um, and hopefully I can do the same for that person. You know, me, I bring something to the table that they lack. And so. Well, I think the, the most important partnership that I um, came across about 10 years ago was with my web development team. You know, it was 2008, you know, people were still doing basic HTML stuff and I was kind of fumbling with it. I hated code. I couldn't stand it. <laughs> and I was on a a Yahoo group, I think it was called PeerNet, that I think still exists yeah, today. Yeah, I know PeerNet, yep. And I saw, I got an email from um, a guy and he said, hey, listen, you do, do, you do design, I do development, let's talk. And 250 websites later, we share an office and, wow. uh, you know, we've made a great partnership. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's a lot of work, by the way. 250 sites later. 
I'm guessing, but it might be actually more than that at this point. Wow, Mike, you guys are cranking. We do a lot of work, a lot of volume, but that yeah. keeps us busy. And you know, I like it. I don't like sitting around here uh, doing nothing. But this is the this is what you're saying, though. It's great for him and for you. He probably doesn't love doing design work, but he no, loves he, he loves coding sites. And so you know, you're together. First of all, much more valuable to the client because you're a f- turnkey solution. Mm-hmm. But then for each other, because at the end of the day, you're finding work for him. He's finding work for you. And both of your uh, respective work is better because of the other guy on the other side of the table. Right. And, I mean, it's also been where there's jobs that have come up that have been just development. And I'm like, hey, here's this job. it his way, sure. Right. And vice versa. He'll say, I have this design job. I don't want to do it. Take it. And yeah. so it works kind of that way. Nice. It's good stuff, Mike. How how would you advise going about doing that? It's one thing to say, hey, get strategic partners. We kind of fleshed out what that looks like. How do I find strategic partners? Oh, just it's so pick easy. Up the phone? It's easy today. You got LinkedIn on there. Um, so use that. Use things like PeerNet. Use Facebook. You know, you start Do you just reach people. out to people cold? Like, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, nope. at this point, you know, 10 years down the, the line, sometimes they're referrals at this point. Yeah. But um, at first, it's just hitting the pavement. Now, 75, 80% of them are not going to be partner material for you. Right. So you're but just reaching out and saying, gems. you want to have a cup of coffee? I want to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Y- you have a lot of first dates. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that's great advice. I think anybody that wants to get started, um, you know, we've been talking, there's this kind of underlying theme about relationships and how important relationships are. And really these strategic partnerships will be some of the keyest the keyest. Is that a thing? The keyest? I think the it most is. important. You you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not a name dropper, but like one of my favorite uh my, my favorite partners is Canfield and Tech here in Rochester. The printing it's company, yeah. Yep. Fantastic. And Mark Choma is the best he's, print salesman. He's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And I always say, you know, no matter what, I can trust Mark and the job's going to get done. It's going to get done right. I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And that's where all my work will go to. And yeah. um, at the same time, because I've brought him so much, he'll say, hey, Mike, I have this job for this client. Take it on. Go forth. You know, Or he'll just say, I met this person. You need to talk to them. Okay. So it, there's a give and take and it's sure. wonderful. Sure. No, it's good stuff. Guys, my guest today has been Mike Sukanko. He is the founder, owner of Sukanko Design. Check him out at Sukanko Design or Sukanko.com, S-U-K-H-E-N-K-O.com. Or Mike, what's that other website? Graphic Design RochesterNY.com. Much easier to remember. Mike, thanks so much for being on the currency. You've been a fantastic guest, and and I really believe the ballistas got a lot of value. So thank you. Oh, this has been fun. I hope we can do it again. Yeah. Hey, I, I'll I'll take you up on it in the near future. <laughs> Sounds great, Mike. All right, guys. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to check out the show if you haven't subscribed already to the currency. You can do so anywhere fine podcasts are provide Apple, iTunes, Google Plus, Stitcher Radio and so on. Love you guys, and I'll check you all in the next episode.